Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on an autumn day in the capital where the sun has just started to poke through the clouds is Oliver Codrington. Oliver is a self-employed legal brain and managing director of the London Wellness Centre, the fastest growing private preventative healthcare company in London. To date, Oliver runs a number of businesses, um, having also been director at Portfolio Legal Limited and Opus Independent Financial Planning both in the West Midlands on a self-employed basis. Um, Oliver, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. And it's such a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. And just before we do um, delve straight into the um, the discussion, normally um, we do tend to uh, approach this from the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start today's discussion there, just because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time, really, for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your businesses, Oliver, just how has it affected you and your operations? Um. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, it, it is without doubt the, the most significant challenge that I faced as a, as a business owner. Um, and, uh, and certainly it's been a challenge, um, to leaders up and down the country, of course, starting, starting at number 10. But, um, I think best to start and, and really focus with London Wellness Centre. And the reason I do that is because it is, um, it really only exists in a face-to-face uh, way, whereas um, law firms or uh, wealth managers or, or other businesses in the service sector um, can uh, very quickly and easily adapt to a sort of way of remote working and remote client engagement. Whereas uh, for us at London Wellness, where the services we offer are uh, very physical and necessarily face-to-face, um, we have chiropractors predominantly, but we also have massage therapists, podiatrists, um, private GPs, etc. And, um, you know, certainly it is, uh, we can provide help remotely, but the reality is that the most of our value is going to be in a face-to-face and in a, in a physical contact sense. Um, so that's really, you know, on the 23rd of March when, when the government sort of, uh, locked down the country um, and in fact one of my main criticisms I think is that it they locked our customers down and our practitioners down but they didn't actually lock the business down as it were um, and so we were left immediately having to make that that sort of decision ourselves um, which was you know do, do we close the clinics or do we stay open providing um, what we say and is uh, you know, a frontline support service, really. Um, sort of, uh, I, my answer seems to have taken was a question, but, um, you know, if 80% of adults mm. uh, in the UK have back pain 
um, and a third of all GP visits are about musculoskeletal uh, pain, then really we are a frontline service uh, helping that, although it may seem like a sort of nice to have rather than essential. Um, private healthcare, especially chiropractic and osteopathy and, and all those other things, are really quite essential because they do take pressure off the NHS. Mm. Um, but certainly sitting where I sat in those weeks, it felt very much like we were sort of being left to our own devices and left to make those big decisions ourselves. Um, but I guess that is what leadership's all about. So, uh, yeah, no, no one wrote the rule book. Uh, or no one wrote the playbook, I should say. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's certainly the, the context in which all the decisions were made in March and, and April. Mm. I think you raise a very valid point about leadership there. It is about trying to overcome challenges, especially those that are fundamentally uh, beyond your control. And just to touch on leadership, just that little bit more broadly, when you are faced with a challenge, maybe the magnitude of COVID-19, how do you mentally prepare yourself for having to deal with the trials and tribulations of that? And I ask that question just because mental health and well-being are two things that have really been thrust back into the limelight by this whole pandemic. Oh yeah, I mean it, and and the truth is, you you can't prepare. None of us were prepared, um, and so I I suspect most people would answer that you simply just have to um, make decisions, um, and which sounds sounds obvious, but actually is uh, most people's default position is let's let's see how it plays out and let's then make some decisions. Whereas actually I think that um, leadership, um, especially at at that moment in time, requires decisions. Um, And I would always, I mean, the military advocate, you know, keep making decisions. That's all you really need to do. If you're standing still, that's when you, that's when you're at risk. And I, I, I kind of think the business world is the same. You just have to keep going, keep making these decisions. And uh, some of it is just hoping you're making the right ones. I mean, so many of our decisions impact mm. people's people's pay packets, their you know their their health and safety. You know, if you are asking people to come to work um, in in a global pandemic, you are making a decision which has an impact. If you are, um, uh, you know, if you're making decisions that affect their finances, um, you know, you you have to be aware that these are weighty weighty decisions and and they have a real impact so many people that i've had on the uh, the program during uh, this time have described the covid19 pandemic as being like their first days back in back when they started their business because a lot of this has been fundamentally trial and error hasn't it it's a whole new issue for all of us and we're having to adapt to changing guidelines changing circumstances really feel our way through this and it's been a fundamental learning curve for everybody in business hasn't it it has um and i i say with it with a slight sort of smile on my face that the 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 positive that has come from this is that businesses have really had to go through a root and branch review of everything they do, um, what they're spending money on, why, um, whether they need certain expenses or resources, uh, services, products, um, and uh, you know, yes, people, but but actually, it's also meant that we've got we've really made efficiencies throughout our businesses, which which is good. 
the other thing which I found a, a really um, a really interesting uh, point is that all businesses face this, whether they were turning over a million pounds a year or, or 100 million pounds a year, um, the leaders of those businesses were going through the same sorts of exercises. Numbers may have been bigger, but the exercise was the same in those early weeks and months of, of this year, I suppose. I mean, everyone's sort of viewing March as the start of the year, but, um, of course, at the, at the start of Q2. But, um, you know, that that's what we were doing, every business. And you can see now the businesses that have survived are the ones that, that made those very quick and very effective decisions. Um, and the ones that didn't uh, were either unable or un, sort of willing. I, I suspect more unable to make those decisions. And, and therefore, um, you know, they're, they're paying the price for having not been able to earn revenue for, for a number of months. It, 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 you know, in some industries, obviously, still unable to really get their revenue figures back up. Mm. Proactivity within leadership is something that is incredibly positive. However, it's very difficult now to plan for the long-term future because there isn't really much of a long-term anymore. The long-term is now weeks and months as opposed to years just because of changing guidelines, changing circumstances. And so it's measuring proactivity up against being able to be reactive as well and adjust to changing circumstances as and when they come to light because um, businesses have really had to step up to the plate and do that over the uh, the last few months. And for the large part, it's certainly held up on its end of the bargain. And we've seen some incredible innovations as it's had to adapt and pivot to what's been going on. Yes, um, yes. I wasn't sure which bit there was the question, but um, it, it is true that timescales have been have been changed, and short term is now days and weeks, uh, whereas it may have been longer. Um, I do still think that it's good to have a long term view that doesn't include COVID um, or COVID nineteen. Um, but you know, so so I don't I don't think we should we should view all of our decisions through the lens of COVID-19, but I do certainly think that short and medium term, we are looking at, uh, you know, continuing restrictions, um, varying restrictions, and as you say, um, you know, rules and regulations that are changing on on an almost daily basis. Um, But... You know, I think it's very important we stay positive. Um, you know, that's what people look to leaders for is a is a positive uh, and proactive, as you said. Um, but uh, you know, that, that's the view that mm. that we have to have. We have to believe that that we will uh, we will get through this. That our revenues will recover. Um, that the the country will recover. The economy will recover. Um, and you know, this will just be. Um, you know, this will be a very significant uh, chapter in the history books. Mm. You're very right about having to uh, stay positive and maintain that attitude because we are going to recover from this, however long it may ultimately take. And also, there may be a lot of disheartened young people out there that maybe are looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the economy and on their employment prospects and may not be so buoyant about the uh, the future. But just for those people, just given your many years' experience within business, Oliver, what message would you have to give those young aspiring leaders, entrepreneurs, to really sort of help them pick their heads up and get them on the road to success? I think it's back to one of the points I made earlier, that they, they need to um, take some solace from the fact that everybody 
from the chief executive of you know major multinational companies right through to uh, you know the, the smallest businesses um, were faced with the same reality and are faced with the same reality, um, and that is the need to uh, stay positive, as we've said, um, and to innovate everything. And you know, yes, it, it is harder to find jobs, for example, but you know, let's innovate the search. Let's innovate everything we do and see how we can, um, same as if you're running a business or if you're, if you're looking for a job, you're, you're looking for attention. You've got a target market. Um, if you're looking for a job, it's employers. Um, how do you get that attention in a crowded marketplace? Um, and so I would say to anybody who is uh, feeling um, is sort of negative about this uh, situation, um, you know, what, what one thing are you uh, amazing at? Uh, what's your superpower? I often ask people. Um, and, you know, is there anyone out there who needs that? Um, but I would also just think about innovation. Um, and innovation doesn't, you know, I know it can be a word that's taken out of context or given a, a bigger context. You know, there are now heads of innovation for, for major companies, but innovation is also just a, a way of thinking, a way of thinking differently. Um, and so maybe uh, maybe the way that it's always done isn't the way it should be done now. And so I would say to everybody to look at everything they're doing and wonder to themselves openly to each other whether there's a way of doing things differently. Um, because that's what businesses of the future and businesses which survive into the future are going to be focused on is you know, potentially doing things differently. And so people who have that already sort of hardwired into themselves um, will be will be at a massive advantage. Um, mm. I, you know, the, the, the things, things I hate hearing are, well, that's the way we've always done it. And, you know, now that is, that is gone. Um, businesses which couldn't change the way they do things probably aren't around now or won't be around in the future. And so, you know, that, that's really, I think there's an opportunity for anybody, uh, you know, sort of entering this, this world, either the world of work or the world of business ownership, the opportunity is to do things differently. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I, again, staying positive, there, there is, there's big opportunity out there. There are. You're absolutely right. And youngsters, businesses have really got to be ready to seize upon those opportunities that will be there as a result of this. And just before our time on the programme does draw to its close, Oliver, I would like to talk about the future in a little bit more detail because there will be opportunities over the uh, the next few months. But during that time, we're going to have to continue to adjust to the new normal as it's being built in the way that we live and the way that we work. So with that in mind, where do you see yourselves business-wise being in 12 months' time? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the uh, the next year? Gosh, um, that, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, I, you know, I, I hope we're growing. Um, I hope that certainly from, from the, you know, from London Wellness uh, Centre's point of view, I hope that people are more open to taking a proactive approach to their healthcare as opposed to um, simply uh, reacting to pain uh, 
and, and then seeking help. I hope people are now open to sort of getting that regular health check, that sort of the MOT, as it were, um, for their bodies. And um, in the, from a business point of view, I'll be looking to continue to make efficiencies so that we can continue to provide services that are, that are demanded in the marketplace. Um, you know, I hope we can expand the number of clinics we work with, um, you know, to provide centralized administration and, and allow more practitioners to help more people. Um, and, you know, I do, I do really genuinely um, have a positive uh, outlook on this. Um, and, and for all those people who've lost their, lost their jobs, I, I, I regret that, um, you know, in, in every industry. I think that's, that is uh, terrible. And I hope that many of them can turn this around into, into an advantage for them. Um, and uh, can possibly look at, at different ways of of doing things and and um, you know go forth and, and prosper. I think we can create a really enterprising nation, um, uh, possibly using this as a catalyst, um, you know, out of adversity and all that. Mm. It certainly is going to be a very interesting time and let us hope that we are going to be in a position to really bounce back from this and prosper in future. Um, and I have to say, um, I think just given how enlightening it's been, Oliver, having you join us on the programme today, I think it would be wonderful at some point in this next year to catch up and have you back on our programme just to see how things are coming along in um, that regard. And we can also just assess how things are going at your businesses and touch base on that. It would be my pleasure. Thank you. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you uh, join us on the uh, the programme uh, today, for sure. And until we do hopefully get to speak in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on, because what is for sure is we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, but let's certainly hope that we will be before too long. Agreed. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to welcome Oliver Codrington onto today's programme. And I would reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners. Do please continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Coming up next on today's programme, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. That interview is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a 
politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people 
who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was 
all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? 
Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your 
thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. 
and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with 
ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, 
um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.